the mechanical death traps that lay all around us. And then we cover a story that reminded me of why I love doing this show so much. Get your backpacks on. We're headed into the ravine today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys had a great weekend. It was pretty chill out here. The weather's been pretty nice. I was doing some research and I found a fascinating story for you. We're going to do that second. Also, while I was researching that, I found a series of stories that were gruesome and scarily mundane. Scarily weird. Is scarily a word? Anyways, okay, they were scary. So, we're going to start off with that. Now, I was trapped in an elevator when I was a little boy. I had to have been, it was probably back in like in 1982, 1983. So, I would have been about six or seven years old. And uh, this was when my dad was still in college and we lived on campus. And it was funny, a bunch of crazy stuff happened at that campus. Some dude robbed a comic book store. And he was selling all the comics for like 25 cents, 50 cents each. And I got like Daredevil issue two through like maybe 28 for like a couple bucks. Which back then, to be fair, a quarter, you know, you could go to the movies, buy popcorn and a six pack of beer. Like back in the 80s, money went much further. That's why Daredevil is actually one of my favorite heroes. It was the first comic book. I read all those stolen comics from the local comic book store. But anyways, California Baptist College in Riverside, California. I was trapped in an elevator with my older brother and two hot co-eds. Now, I didn't know they were hot at the time. I, th- I kind of had a feeling that they were hot, but I was like seven. You know, I wasn't really that into girls. Plus, they were brunettes, so, you know. But, it sucked. It totally sucked. We were in there for a couple hours, and I was crying the whole time, and I wanted to pee my pants. And my older brother was like, if you weren't there, man, I would have gotten their phone numbers. He was like 12 at the time. Anyways, so they spent the time... Mother- Maybe I was pretending to cry because I wanted to get some motherly love from these hot... I Most likely, I actually was crying and peeing my pants. Anyways, even through that whole experience, I never became afraid of elevators. Never developed an elevator fetish either, which is kind of odd now that I think about it. But I wonder if people do have elevator... Fe- That's a stupid question. Of course people have elevator fetishes. Um, Looking at... I've never had... A f- what I'm trying to say is I've never had a fear of elevators. But when you really kind of step back and think about it, it's one of the most bizarre modes of transportation that we use. Because most of the other ones we have, other than submarines, you can look out of. Or armored car, you're being transported because the Joker is trying to kill you. Like, for the most part transportations are designed as a level of comfort and visibility. People do not like being trapped in places with no windows. And you get into this box that closes, and then for a certain amount of time, it moves in one direction or another, like elevators, you know how elevators work. But when that door reopens, you have no idea what's on the other side of that door. You could get in an elevator, the door closed, it goes up five levels, door open, fire, door open, zombie apocalypse. Door opens... Any possibility because you can't see out of it. Now, of course, (laughs) now that I'm saying all that, I realize there are different types of elevators. And some of them are like cargo elevators where you can visibly see they're not worried about zombies stumbling in. But consumer level elevators are quite scary. 
in a sense. So that whole segue goes into this. I think people are always afraid of elevators like plummeting, like you're in an elevator and you think if this falls down, other than falling up, if, if you die in an elevator, like could you jump at the last moment? Apparently you're supposed to lay down in the middle of an elevator so you can, like you have to be right in the middle of the elevator and you make your body as wide as possible. That will help absorb the impact so you don't die. But the problem is, is when's the last time you've been on an elevator by yourself? So don't tell anyone else that tip. So if you're ever in an elevator with someone else and it starts to fall, you get down on the ground, spread out in the middle. And if someone's screaming, what are you doing? What are you doing? You say, I'm going to take the full blow of the impact for you, my love. You will survive this impact. I will die for you. And then they get horribly mangled and you're fine. Well, I'm sure you have massive internal bleeding, but you're probably going to live. Don't tell anyone else that tip because otherwise everyone's going to be fighting for the middle spot. Getting to the point of this story. Getting to the point of the story. There was a very famous incident of a man in New York who was trapped in an elevator. I don't know why I forgot that word all of a sudden. That's all I've been talking about. Was trapped in an elevator for 41 hours. And there's actually video footage of him and what he endured during that 41 hours. Now, it's something I wouldn't have thought about at the time, but I would think, well... Cover this before in another episode. If I was trapped in an elevator by myself for a period of time, I would most likely start masturbating at some point. But I didn't realize, one, there would be video cameras in there. And two, the lights are always on. And now that doesn't mean that I have to masturbate in the dark. What I mean is that you couldn't sleep because elevators tend to be fairly bright. So that would suck. Like, you could see the guy trying to sleep, but there's this giant light right over him. You see him trying to do a bunch of stuff. It's a fascinating video that's in the links. It's in the show notes. But And you're like, oh, that's an interesting experience. You can tell his grandkids about that. So, except the masturbating part. However, though, not all stories end as well. We're going to the year 2016. So very, very recent, very, very recent story here. We're going to China, and it's January. Now, the reason why that's important is because it's Chinese New Year. So, generally, for Chinese New Year, you get a week off. But a lot of times, workers will take days before off and days after off. And there was this elevator that needed to be repaired. And the repairmen were like, we'll get to it after Chinese New Year. I wonder if they call it Chinese New Year over there. Because we don't call it American New Year over here. I'm sure that it's some other name. But anyway, so they're like, after this holiday that we don't know what the name of it is, we'll come back. And so they make the elevator go, this is like an apartment complex. They make the elevator go all the way down to the first floor. They walk over to it and go, is anyone in there? No one says anything. So they go, no one must be in there. And they leave. A month later, after they're done partying, or whatever they do during Chinese New Year, they come back, the maintenance men come back to the elevator and the apartment complex to work on it. So for the whole month, no one had been able to use this elevator. Stairs, stairs all the way up. They open up the elevator, and there is a woman in there, her hands mangled from trying to claw open the doors. She'd been in there for a month. Dead. I guess I have to add that part, too. She's dead. Mangled hands. She's dead. Now, one of the maintenance workers was actually held for a negligent homicide. He was actually charged for it. What's interesting was that happened in 2016. I wasn't able to find any follow-up articles as to whether or not this guy was actually convicted of it. It's also weird that we don't really have a name for the woman. It could be from a privacy thing, but all we have is her surname, which is Wu. And she was 
in her late 30s to early 40s. That's all the information. And so at this point, I'm thinking, this story actually might not be true. We really don't have a lot of information on it. And every article kind of says the exact same details. This is her last name. They don't know how old she is. It was kind of weird. And then people in the in the apartment complex were wondering, and journalists overall were saying, how come no one noticed this woman was missing for a month? And then it kind of spun out into this thing. I read an article saying that single women should have an app on their phone to alert. They don't press the button every day. Their loved ones come looking for them. I'm thinking, isn't that what we do to like six-year-olds or people who are like severely mentally disabled? I can't believe someone suggested that women should have an app where they have to check in every day. But anyway, someone did. There's one, and I read that and I was like, well, that'd be gruesome. And the thing is, people go, oh, she was trapped in there for a month. Technically, no, she wasn't. I mean... You can go between three days and a week without water. So, I mean, look on the bright side. She was only trapped in there for a week, most. But dying of dehydration. I actually had a um, a mono flare-up a couple years ago. My throat swelled shut. I didn't know what it was. I didn't have insurance. I was just sitting in my grandma's house, getting worse and worse and worse, waiting for whatever I had to break. And I went three days without drinking anything. It was too painful. I could barely talk. And going three days without any, I think within three days I had one coffee cup full of water. That's all I could get down. Most painful, I felt like that was the closest I ever came to dying a natural death. I could feel my body like shutting down. Finally, a friend came over, Chelsea came over, took me to the ER. They put an IV in me and I told the nurse when I got that first burst of liquid, I said, it's like taking a shower in Sprite. It was the most refreshing feeling I'd ever had in my life. I was that close to just dying, and then all of a sudden my body was full of liquid. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Anyways, to end that story on a less beautiful note, as I'm reading about this elevator thing, apparently China has a big problem over there. They had one month where five people... Well, actually, now that I think about it, yeah. Five people died in one month in China due to elevator accidents, but China also has a lot of people, and it's quite big. So, I mean... It could just be statistical, but they have a lot of industrial problems over there. There's so many videos of people. One of the videos is a guy is getting... It's horrible that you can watch this online, but there's a guy getting in an elevator, and the elevator starts going up while he's halfway in, halfway out. And then it goes up too fast, and it, like, compresses him. Not like an accordion. He's not Tom and Jerry, but, like, he gets crushed in between the top of the elevator and the, the floor going up. And so his knee is pressed up against his shoulder and his other leg is hanging out of the elevator and then it stops because it's jammed and he suffocates. So it's not even like he got chopped in half like Final Destination. It wasn't a quick death. He just kind of sat there and suffocated while his friends were watching. Horrible. But if you think that's bad, I hope you don't have an escalator fetish because we're still in China for this one. This story was... You're like, Jason, why are you starting off with these industrial accident stories? I just found this so interesting because these are things we use every single day for the most part. I mean, I don't use escalators all the time, but you know, I use them occasionally. I didn't even know this was a thing. Once my shoelace got stuck in an escalator, but I mean, that, I, that was fine. I just pulled my foot. Actually, my dad pulled my foot until the shoelace broke. So in China, though, there's a one, this is fairly recent as well. This happened before the elevator incident. There's this video footage of two maintenance workers at a mall. There's an, they're standing at the top of an escalator, and they're discussing something, right? And you see a woman and her son, who appears to maybe be like six or seven, coming up the escalator. And the two guys are just kind of standing there. And when the woman and her son get to the top of the escalator, 
she takes a step onto where you would assume is supposed to be solid ground and no any sort of quicksandish type technology. But when she steps off the escalator, she steps on a metal plate that then flips off. It wasn't attached right. She falls into the gears of the escalator and it eats her. It just grinds her up. And as she's getting horribly, horribly mangled, she pushes her son to the workers, clear of the machinery, and she gets chewed up. There's video of that, too. And I was like, I'm not watching that video. I didn't watch the elevator video. But they're like, warning, there may be gruesome footage in this video. And then they just show you still photographs from the camera, like, as I'm reading the article, of one, a guy, like, stuck in an elevator, and then the other one, half a woman in a machine pushing her son. I'm like, what? If you're warning me that the, not to watch the video, why are you showing me some of the photographs from it? It's just as bad. But anyways, apparently just chewed her up. And the, the answer to all that, the newspaper in China the next day ran an article telling you how to shut off an escalator. Wasn't the escalator's fault. Woman should have known how to hit that button. So there we go. Our escalator slash elevator, or should we call them elevators? Those little simple things we used to I want to say teleport. Those little simple things we use to transport around. Millions of people use them every day. Some people get squished. It's bizarre. I mean, and to make it even worse, the escalator, as the woman was getting chewed up and the maintenance guys were working there, everyone else is just shopping. The dad, the dad of the boy was on another floor shopping, and then eventually he sees a commotion. He goes down there. His wife's jelly. Bizarre, dude. That would totally ruin your shopping experience. That would totally... I mean, you would just be bummed out forever. So, from that, let's go ahead and move on to the ravine. Now, the ravine story is one of those things is... As I was researching it, I was like... Hmm. And I do that a lot. But then when I get to the end of it, I'm like... "Eh." And I type up all my notes and I'm like... Okay, I kind of know what approach I'm taking with this. But let's start off... I will take you down the same path that I traveled. The year 1970s. Very, very vague thing. So right here you think, hmm, this is most likely fake. But 1970s. I found this article about this event that supposedly took place in the 1970s. In South America, I believe. There was a college professor, an unnamed college professor. We've done enough episodes where we, again, know where this story's going. The year is, there's no specific year, there's no specific name. We do know that this college professor taught at a college called the University of the Andes. He walks out of his office one day after school, talks to a couple of his colleagues, talks to a couple of students. He's walking out to the parking lot. Generally, just a liked guy. People know who he is. They don't say his name, but we'll assume he was very popular. Before And once this unnamed college professor gets to his car, someone says his name, he turns to him, he waves goodbye to him, gets into the car. And then no one ever saw him again. The car was still in the parking lot. The last anyone saw was him getting in the car. They never saw the car drive away. He's been missing for 40 years. Now, that supposedly was written up in the El Tiempo, which is Venezuela's largest newspaper. It was supposedly written up by a journalist known as Suganda Peña. You'll see article after article referring to this very vague event, and they'll say, here's the article, and you click on it, it says, page not found. So, it's possible the story never existed. It started as an internet legend and they just linked it to a page that never was there. It's possible that the story was published by that newspaper at some point, but 
I see that from time to time where older articles are no longer found on that website, but they did exist at one point because I have them cached somewhere else. Or it could be that it was it was in the newspaper and then they realized that this story is ridiculous and then they removed it from their website. All three of those are possible. But I can't get any more information on that. And there's just nothing specific about it. So who knows whether or not it's true in any way, shape, or form. But as I kept researching that, I found this story. This is the story of the girl of the pears, or the pear girl. And pear as in like a fruit that you eat, not as like two of kind. Let's hop in the Dead Rabbit Dirigible, because we're going to leave Venezuela. We got across the Atlantic. We're going to Spain. Specifically, we're going to the island of Tenerife. Tenerife, it's one of the, it's the largest island in the Canary Islands. So we float over there on the Dead Rabbit Dirigible. We're going back in time to the year 1910. And we're in the year 1910, and there's a young girl there, not named. So again, a little suspicious. Again, some people place this story not in 1910, but 1905. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, it's still fairly vague. We have a girl who's not named. Could There's a five-year difference between when the story may have taken place. And for the most part, it is considered a legend in the area. This young girl is just chilling at her house. And they're all eating lunch. And the mom says, honey, will you go, we'll just call her honey. Honey, will you go to the pear farm? The pear orchard, I guess is the right word. Your dad wants pears for dessert. And she's like, yes, mama, I will go get pears. That'll be a fun adventure. I'll go get my friends. And the mom's like, yeah, your friends. Because she knows she doesn't have any friends. She's kind of a loser. So Honey goes out into the village and tries to round up some friends. Says, hey, do you guys want to go pick pears for my dad? He needs, woohoo! I imagine, like, you just don't need a pear for dessert. I figure if that, you would just have pears on the dinner table. They probably, like, covered them in honey or sugar or something like that. But anyways, so she's like, hey, do you guys want to go into the orchard with me to go get pears? And her friends, she actually did have friends. Her mom just doesn't think very highly of her. Her friends go, oh, no way, dude, because we know where that pear orchard is. Now, this pear orchard was owned by the Honey's family. And it was in a place called Barranco de Chamoco. And that area is littered with caves. And going far, far back, the people living there believe that the caves are inhabited by spirits. It's not a place you want to go. It's definitely not a place you want to go as a child. The whole place is just generally spooky. It's basically Elm Street, but a ravine full of caves. And people disappear. So she can't get any of her friends to go with her. She goes, well, I got to go get the pears. Like, I have to go. So she goes off into the ravine. And she starts picking pears. And when she's in the ravine, she starts to feel just the heat of the sun on her. She's like, oh, my God, it's so hot. I wish my dad didn't eat pears. I wish my dad was allergic to pears and I can give him one and he'd just swell up and die. I hate my dad so much. I hate him so much. But as she's having these horrible thoughts, just the sun's beating down on her. And... She begins to notice a very cool mist in the area. And she's thinking, that's not normal. And she's watching this mist kind of roll through the ravine. And it's enveloping her skin. And she just immediately feels a cool relief from the hot, hot sun. She's almost lost in the mist at this point. And that's when a tall figure dressed in all white appears out of the mist. And leads her down what she described as an impossibly long corridor. 
And she goes, at first I was scared, obviously, because this is something completely out of the ordinary. But I felt compelled to keep walking. And the creature or the person or whatever it was kept making hand signals. That's the only way it could communicate with Honey was by making hand signals to her of where to go, how to follow her. And that was the only way the creature could communicate with Honey. So they walk all the way down this passage. And eventually she said it opened up into a beautiful orchard. Like they were on this little like precipice. And she looked down and she saw this orchard going as far as the eye could see. She said every type of fruit, every type of tree you can imagine was there. And the valley was littered with people just like the stranger who led her down the cave. She said it looked like a watercolor painting in motion. She's the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen. She immediately felt this just sense of peace and joy come over her. Now, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking at this point, what she inhaled was most likely some sort of noxious or toxic gas, and she had a near-death experience. We have the tunnel of light. We have the over being overcome with a sense of joy and wonder. We have a guardian angel-type figure. And I'm like, okay, she walked out there, the earth farted, she started to pass out because of some sort of carbon dioxide overdose, and then she woke up. But as I'm continuing to read the story, she's in the cave, and eventually the her guide, the tall being, began to motion her away and motioned her back down with his hand, saying, hey, no, come here, come here, you can do it, you're a good girl, good girl, motioning her, that's the only way they could communicate, back down the corridor. And then she finds herself back in the pear orchard. But the first thing she notices, the cool mist is gone, and it is 10, 15 degrees hotter than when she left. And she's thinking, there is no way it could be this hot all of a sudden. She's, now she's getting scared again, because now she's, now she's back in our world, and she's experiencing something that she shouldn't experience. So she, anyway, she gets the pears, because, you know, she still has to do her job, and she's just figuring, you know, I'll tell them about the... Tell them about the monster people in the valley and all that stuff. It'll be a cool story while we're eating pears. She makes her way out of the ravine, and she notices a road that wasn't there when she went into the ravine. She's like, uh-oh. Some, okay, okay. And as she's walking down the road, she begins to see cars driving on the road, which she described as futuristic-looking cars. But she is finally able to make her way home. And there her mother, her now middle-aged mother greets her it's the year 1940 30 years passed while she was in the ravine and the mother calls out and says it's my girl it's my girl her name was her name became or the story is la nina de las paris paras or the pear girl is how it's kind of known so it's a local legend in that area about this girl who went looking for pears in this ravine that everyone knows is haunted and then came back 30 years later so, interesting story. Possible proof of a time slip. Most likely a local legend of a spooky place. And again, a lot of these legends have a core moral value. This one would be, kids, don't go there alone. If you go there alone, something bad may happen. Stay out of there. You know, that's how these urban legends are created. But as I'm reading that article, I go, this sounds familiar. This sounds really familiar. You know, when I watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it's funny because my favorite character on that show was Giles. Love that. Love that character. I always love the idea of like researching books and like having like five books out on the table and going through it and trying to like solve this mystery. He was always my favorite character. I always felt more like, I always felt he was the most relatable one because that's kind of the way that I approached 
stuff. Not like I ever fought demons. Well, actually, I did. But the point is, is that I always liked that ideal and even that visual aesthetic, whatever, that thing that you look at and you go, I like that. So I'm reading this article in the coffee shop. It was getting ready to just be another weird disappearing thing I was going to do about the guy in the car and then go, oh, here's a local legend I found too. But as I'm reading it, I said, I've heard this story. And not only have I heard it, I heard it almost 2,000 miles away. We're going to Moscow. So outside of Moscow, there is a place known as Golosov Ravina. In the year 1621, a detachment of Tatar horsemen, we've covered them before in the Great Mud Flood thing, the empire that's pretty much been erased from the history books. In 1621, a detachment of Tatar horsemen show up at the Tsarist palace and are immediately taken prisoner because they shouldn't be there at all. And when they're being questioned, they go, what are you doing here? Why are you, why did a bunch of like cavalrymen show up here in the middle of the day? And they go, we have some questions. Yes, to be fair, we did try invading you guys, but something's wrong. Something's off. And as the as they're basically being questioned by the Russian forces, because the Tatar Empire and the Russians did not like each other. I guess if you didn't listen to that episode, that's, they hated each other, actually. But anyways, as the Russians were trying to figure out what, why these guys showed up in the middle of nowhere, they start to notice something. One, they appeared out of the middle of nowhere, but two... Their armor was old, and not like old and rusted and busted and stuff like that. It was an old-style armor. It was an armor that the Tatar Empire had not used since 1570, 50 years earlier. And what the Tatar soldiers were saying was, listen, when we were there at the Battle of Moscow, you guys started whooping our butt. You guys are far more better prepared than we gave you credit for. So we... Us group of guys took off, and we hid. And they, the the investigators, going to go to. Let me guess. Let me guess. You hid in Golosov Ravine. Tatar soldiers, like, yeah. How would you know? And the Russians go. You know that place is haunted. We don't. It's not a place that we go. It's just this weird place. There's been a lot of disappearances and stuff like that there. And this may be the cause of why. And the, and the Tatar soldiers said, yes, we went. We hid in the ravine, and a mist rolled through the ravine. The next thing we knew, we came out of the ravine. We noticed things weren't right. None of our other soldiers were here. Couldn't get a hold of anybody. Lost and with nothing else to do, we came back to Moscow thinking, hey, maybe we won the battle. Or maybe we could just get some answers. But that's not it. That's not what I was reminded of when I read the story of the pear girl. Golosov Ravine 1832, two local peasants get drunk. They're having a good time, just hanging out, just chilling, throwing their arms around each other, tickling each other. And these two peasants say, you know what? Let's take a shortcut home through Golosov Ravine. I'm like, okay, why'd you pronounce it differently that time than you did every other time? And he's like, I don't know, I'm drunk. So these two peasants go into the ravine. A mist rolls through. They come out of the ravine. 20 years had passed. When they get home, their wives don't recognize them. But they had a bit of a different twist on their story. They said, when the two peasants said, when we went into the ravine, the mist rolled through, and a giant corridor appeared out of nowhere. Out of that corridor, a tall, hairy person walked and communicated with us only using their hands. 
and led us back out of the corridor. The Tatar story and the two peasant stories supposedly were both investigated by the government. The Tatar story was apparently like that was an official report was filed with the Russian government over why these soldiers showed up out of nowhere. And again, reportedly, the peasant story was an official police transcript. And when the police went out to the ravine to investigate whether or not their story was true, one of the officers disappeared. Those particular details, I can't verify. I found articles talking about it, but I couldn't find actually a police report from 1832. Those may or may not exist. What I find fascinating is these two stories, one in Golosov Ravine, and one in the Canary Islands, separated by decades and thousands of miles, have similarities. Now, normally, if the story is completely made up, they will say this is similar to what happened at Golosov Ravine. Or Golosov Ravine story, if they took the idea from the pear girl, they'll say, you know, there's precedence for this. Something else like this happened in the Canary Islands. As far as I can tell, these two stories have never, ever been connected. In all of my research, I have never found one referencing the other. The resources on Golosov Ravine are almost all in Russian. There's like a short Wikipedia article and a couple articles in English, but and all of the sourced material is in Russian. I had to do translation stuff. The Canary story, again, like I had to go to websites and translate from Spanish. These two stories, as far as I can tell, have never been connected. And they both, even if certain details are wrong, like the 1905 to the 1910, the details of a ravine full of mist, a long tunnel, a tall person, one of them they're hairy and one of them they're just tall. They don't say how much hair they have. They could be like a smooth otter body, could be a full-on bear. We don't know. But you have the ravine, you have the mist, you have the tunnel, you have something tall, only communicating with their hands and, most importantly of all, time jumps. Totally blew my mind when I was reading it, and I go, and I thought this sounds familiar. And I remember when I was pulling back up my Golosov Ravine, which I was going to do as a separate story, just a small story. As I was pulling that up, I said, I know it has to do with mist and ravine, but I'm pretty sure they also said something about only using their hands to communicate. And I pulled it up, and that was the case. The, the this makes me think that this is very, very real. This this makes me think that this not only has happened, but more interesting enough, can happen again. But what's weird is you wouldn't have proof of it for decades. Is there is there a limit to how long you're in that tunnel? To how long it takes for you to get out? Even if some sort of parapsychologist wanted to replicate this, he's going to be like, okay, see you in 60 years. Like, is there any way to test something like that? I honestly think, I could be wrong on this, but I honestly think that this is the first time those two events have been connected. And if that's the case, this stuff has not been researched at all. Because generally, the one in the Canary Islands is considered a local legend. It would basically be like if a scientist wanted to investigate whether or not there were real witches in Salem. Like, you'd be like, of course they're not. Like, we have all of the, it was just a legend people made up to, like, persecute single women and stuff like that. I think these ravines are real. I think the mist can send you forward in time. 
I think this story gets added to the list of conspiracies or things I believe in. Because either someone made up these stories decades ago and never connected them and just thought it'd be funny if someday someone stumbled across both of them, or in two parts of the world, in two similar circumstances, people traveled into the future in the same way. If this is true, it's groundbreaking. If you can warp time like that on Earth, if we have a natural time machine that shoots people forward in time, do you understand? I mean, really, that would change so much. But are they real? We'd have to test them. And then wait, and wait, and wait for the answer. Or we just step into the mists ourselves. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.